and welcome to my podcast, Emergency on Planet Earth. In this episode, we're going to look at the Arctic, one of the most unique, fragile and vulnerable environments on the planet. The Environmental Audit Select Committee has been investigating what climate change and pollution mean for the Arctic. In August, we visited northern Norway and Svalbard, an archipelago in the high Arctic, about 600 miles south of the North Pole. Before we went, I caught up with a trio of experts to find out about what environmental changes are happening there. I spoke to Professor Sheldon Bacon from the National Oceanography Centre at Southampton, Professor Martin Seagert from the Grantham Institute for Climate Change at Imperial College London, and Professor James Ford from the University of Leeds, near me in Wakefield. I started by asking Sheldon Bacon what effect climate change is having on the Arctic. The interesting thing for a scientist about the Arctic is a phenomenon called Arctic amplification. Now, do we know that the world is warming at about one degree centigrade per century uh, as a result of uh, fossil fuel burning and other sources of injecting carbon dioxide, greenhouse gas, into the atmosphere? Um, now, in the Arctic, uh, it's warming about twice as fast, more like two degrees per century. So, why is that happening? Uh, it's a process called the albedo feedback in technical terms. Uh, in simple terms, it's uh, uh, writ large. If you melt a patch of snow cover, if you melt a patch of snow on the ground, you expose dark ground, the ground absorbs more heat, melts more snow, the dark patch expands, which melts, which absorbs more heat, which melts more snow, and so it keeps going. That feedback applied both to snow on land and ice on the ocean is causing an acceleration of uh, the warming rates at the high northern latitudes. It doesn't just apply to uh, ice and snow on the ground, uh, the albedo feedback process is happening in the atmosphere, it affects clouds as well. Changing cloudiness is particularly important in the autumn because uh, low clouds have a blanketing effect and they, they tend to keep heat near the surface later in the season, so the, the melt season, the warm season gets longer, extends further into autumn. So we're seeing huge changes in the Arctic and it's these processes that are wrapped up in uh, uh, Arctic amplification that are causing us concern. Absolutely fascinating. And Martin, tell us what's happening to the sea ice. So we've got land ice, which is all the glaciers in Greenland, uh, which I'd like you to talk to us about. But what's happening to the sea ice, which is where the polar bears live? Right, so there's lots of ice in the Arctic uh, and you rightly say that we have grounded ice on land in many places and the Greenland ice sheet is the biggest place. But there is also a very thin layer of floating ice across much of the Arctic Ocean and extends southwards into the Barents Sea, but east of Greenland as, as well. And that ice is one or two sometimes three metres thick. That's it comes all it and is. goes seasonally. Yeah, so it, it, it expands when it's cold in the wintertime and it retracts when it's warm in the summertime and, and that's just natural. But what we're noticing is that uh, measurements that we've had since the 1970s have been revealing that the sea ice is both thinning on average but also um, uh, reducing in extent at the end of the summer. So by the end of the summer you've had maximum amount of time to melt the sea ice and what we're seeing pretty much year on year is that the area that's left at the end of the summer is getting smaller and smaller. Right. And so we, we, when we think about that melting sea ice, um, we, you know, we're, everyone's worried about the, the sea levels rising. But actually what we heard today is, is that the sea levels are rising because of what's happening in Greenland. 
So about half of sea level rise is coming from the thermal expansion, so the water's getting warmer, so it's swelling, I think if I can put it that way, and half is from the ice melt. So tell us what's happening in Greenland. How much ice is melting in that Greenland land ice? Sure. So um, we can think about it in terms of the amount of sea level rise that's going on right now. So sea level is happening, rise is happening, and um, it's been going on since about 1850, since we've been able to measure it since 1850, and it's been accelerating as well. So it was 0.8 millimetres per year in about 1850, then about 2.4 millimetres per year in the middle 20th century, and then it's at 3.2 millimetres per year, so the rate of change is going up. And as you rightly say, half of that is due to the thermal expansion of the oceans, but that contribution is quite steady. The accelerating part is because we are moving ice, which is on land, turning it into water and (coughs) putting that into the ocean. And that's what's causing the the acceleration. Now, Greenland is a major contributor to that. It has the potential to raise sea levels globally by something like seven metres all all around the world. So just taking off a little bit of the Greenland ice sheet will have major impacts uh, all around the world. Uh, And so we've been able to monitor the Greenland ice sheet from space and also from uh, doing field work on the ice as well. And um, it's simply melting at the surface. It's melting away. That water is being uh, routed through uh, channels, through rivers, and it outputs into into the ocean as well. So it's a it's a, a piece of the um, the ice on our planet that was around at the ice age. Most of that ice is now gone, but the Greenland ice sheet is still there. And it's huge, isn't it? It's like th- you said, three thousand meters tall. Yeah, that's right. So the, so the, it's about three thousand meters in elevation, um, uh, and the ice is very old. You can go back to nearly a hundred thousand years um, at, at the bottom in, in Greenland, much older in Antarctica, of course. But that's about about the age in in, in Greenland. Um, and it's Why is a relic. it older in Antarctica? It's, the snowfall is much less in Antarctica. So, so what you get is a similar ice thickness, say, say three and a half thousand meters of ice thickness. But because of the accumulation of ice, the snowfall is very, very low in Antarctica. You can get much older ice at the, at the bottom. Whereas in, in Greenland, it's a more dynamic system. It's the accumulation of, of, of ice is much greater. Uh, and the flow of ice is much greater. They call it the, the kinematics. The whole sort of system is more energetic. So it's a very dynamic system, but in the wrong way at the moment. Then. Well, at the moment, we're, we're melting it. And the problem that we have is that as you melt a big ice sheet, you lower the surface. And if you lower the surface, then the temperature at the surface will increase. So that's no, you don't have to warm the planet for that to happen. You just have to lower it. Higher up in elevation you go, the colder the temperature is. So if you're reducing elevation, as you melt in the ice sheet, that surface is going to be warmed and that will induce more melting, of course. So it, you can have the prospect of a, of a runaway process as we start to, to uh, melt the green and ice sheet, cause it to reduce in size, cause its elevation to come down, and by doing that, you simply warm it up even further. You add global warming to that, and of course you accelerate it even more. And we're talking, we heard there that the seas could rise by one metre now, is the latest thinking on the high emission scenario by the end of the century, is that right? That's right, so sea levels are going up um, anyway. We know we can measure it, it's happening right now. And um, the question is, what will, what will be the sea level at the end of this century? Well, it's an interesting question at the end of this century. And there are two alternatives being put forward by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. The first is, is that we take drastic action to reduce carbon dioxide emissions to limit global warming to within 1.5 or maybe 2 degrees centigrade of what it was in 1850. That's the, that's the target. And if we do that, sea levels can be retained to something like 50 centimetres 
of what they were at that, at that time, right? So that's that's our ambition. That's the best we can do, actually. So we've got, 50 so we've got another seamless. 30 centimeters coming our, our way, right? That's the best we can do. The worst that can happen is we just keep going business as normal, keep polluting the atmosphere with carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases, and the world warms to three, four, five, six degrees centigrade, what it might end, end up as. And in that situation, it's very difficult to melt ice quickly. Right, so you've got a block of ice and you put it in, a, in your you know, cube of ice, put it in your hot bath. It doesn't melt straight away. It takes a bit of time. Quite a lot of energy is needed to melt ice, but it's inevitable that that will happen. Um, and so sea level will be going up. Uh, and in our worst case scenario, it could be up to one meter globally. The problem is it doesn't stop at 2100. It will just, just keep going. And as I said, there's enough ice in Greenland to raise sea level by seven meters. There's enough ice in Antarctica to raise sea level by, raise sea level by another 60 meters. So there's huge stores of ice on our planet that are in peril at the moment as a consequence of, of global warming and it's sea level uh, that will see the, see the impact. That's absolutely fascinating. Now let's get back to Greenland because um, we heard that the ice sheet is losing 270 billion tonnes. And what does that even look like? Is, what, is that London? Is that Wakefield? Is that... I was just the doing Isle of some White. Can we do some maths and get a visualisation yeah, yeah. of that? Uh, I do have a packet of fags in my pocket, but <laughs> I actually did the sum on the back of a, 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 a business a, a card. Business card. Um, so a, a, a billion tonnes weight of seawater occupies about one cubic kilometre. Now, uh, uh, how do we make that seem plausible in... Uh, we're sitting here in London. How do we make that plausible... Uh, if you look at the island of Great Britain, um, for one, I'm excluding the Irish here, it's about 1,000 kilometres long, so Land's End to John the Groats, and it's about 100 kilometres wide, uh, albeit narrower and broader in places. Now that adds up to a surface area of 10 to the power 11 square metres. I haven't decomposed that into uh, into words. What's, what's 10 to the 11 in words, Martin? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's three professors who <laughs> yeah. don't know 10 to the okay. power of the I'm, I'm feeling no. reassured. Well, it's, it's uh, 100,000 million. There we go. Yeah. Um, now, uh, uh, if you allowed then that surface area, it was just surface area of the island of Great Britain, to be one centimetre deep in water, then you have a volume of one cubic kilometre. Therefore, or in other words, a, a billion tonnes. Therefore, if you're interested to know what, what 270 billion tonnes looks like, you are submerging the island of Great Britain by 270 centimetres, or 2.7 metres. <gasps> wow, that is an amazing... Does that make sense? Yes, it does. So basically, well, no. every year, uh, a three metre, a 270 centimetre high yeah. um, mass, the amount of Great Britain, is being melted. Well, that's, that's, right. that's certainly putting it all into a, a different perspective. Um, let's talk very briefly about um, ocean acidification and plastics. We've got a particular responsibility, haven't we, Martin? Because a lot of our plastic is... I mean, we don't know, but we think because of the currents that a lot of our plastic is ending up in the Arctic. Yeah, we're pretty certain that plastics that are coming out of rivers from the um, into the North Sea and also to the west of the country as well um, anything that's, that's floating in those rivers in plastics is obviously thing, uh, is going to be tracking north um, and follow, going further north into, into the Arctic as well. You know, we heard today that essentially getting into the Arctic is the end destination for plastics. There's really nowhere else to go. Um, and so that's, that's, the, that's the end point of, the, of, the, um, of their journey. But the start point, unfortunately, is in Great Britain and northwestern Europe. So a lot of the plastic, we know plastics are in the ocean, measured them, um, but the, the, the strong likelihood is that they have been 
they originate from northwestern Europe. So it's a real problem for us uh, because if we are responsible for, for that plastic that's been observed, uh, I think it's very important that we think about doing something about it. And that means um, thinking about material design, thinking about production design, um, uh, and uh, thinking about the, the, the systems that we operate in the United Kingdom, the behavior uh, that we do as well to cut down our plastics and also to use plastics that are more biodegradable. Um, and we, it's completely possible for us to do that, but it does need us to change our ways. Fascinating. And Sheldon, you talked about the impact that um, a warming Arctic is having on the UK weather. We've had the beast from the east uh, in March. Um, we've had a summer heat wave uh, in June and July. Um, what effects, why, why is what is happening at the Arctic having an impact on the UK's weather? Uh, so I think uh, that the two most significant direct impacts of of warming in the Arctic, one of which has been already mentioned by Martin here, is uh, the melting of the Greenland ice sheet. The other one to me is the, the direct dynamical influence of Arctic warming on UK weather. Now, um, I said earlier that the Arctic is warming twice as fast as the rest of the planet. It's still much colder than the latitudes we're at. So it means that the temperature difference between where I'm sat here in London and the Arctic is decreasing on average over the long time scale. Now, in Britain, most of our weather comes from the west. Uh, westerly winds, depressions arriving from the west. There are plenty of other types of weather that we experience. Of course, it's a lovely summer's day here. That's a high pressure system. Uh, the wind's not coming from the west. But overall, the storm track is depressions running in from the west, supporting westerly winds. Now the strength of that wind is controlled basically by the north-south temperature difference. So the bigger the temperature difference, like in winter, the uh, stronger the winds. And the weaker the temperature difference, like in summer, the weaker the winds. Now, you can imagine this as being a bit like uh, the tension in a bowstring. Imagine the bow is stretched north-south. Uh, the tension is the temperature difference and what's being fired by the bow are not arrow, not arrows but depressions. So as global warming progresses, as the difference in temperature between the Arctic and our latitudes decreases, gradually the tension in that bow slackens off and we end up with the possibility of, of changes in weather, changes in climate and changes in extremes happening here in Britain, in London, throughout the country and in northwestern Europe, resulting from this, this slackening of the tension in the bowstring. What can happen, in, in principle at least, and we may have seen it in recent winters, is that uh, uh, depressions move more slowly, le leading to extended spells of uh, uh, precipitation, rain or snow. In the winters of 2009 and 2010, Heathrow was shut through excessive snowfalls. Um, spring of I think it was 2013, 2014, uh, it never stopped raining. Um, these are the kinds of things you might expect to see with slow moving weather systems and even weather systems can stall if you get a blocking high over the continent that prevents weather systems from progressing then you can get a depression that just sits over us and it, it, it kind of never stops raining which is a bit like what happened that spring. So um, uh, uh, it, it's a subject that's very, very hard to get to grips with. The, the, the story is kind of easy to tell, but um, uh, uh, disentangling the, the signal of this, this particularly subtle change, uh, as it is at the moment at least, from uh, uh, 
other sources of, of variability in, the, in weather today or even even disentangling signaling models, diagnosing what's happening in models is a real challenge. So it's a, it's a hot topic. It certainly is. And this is absolutely fascinating and very difficult for the people that you're working with, James. Um, tell us a bit about your work on the social science front and your work with um, Arctic communities. Where are they? Yeah. What do they do? And yeah. how, is the, how are these changes uh, having an impact on them? Yeah, so since the early 2000s I've been working with mostly Inuit communities in Northern Canada and also in Greenland. Uh, these are communities that are very small. Uh, they tend to be between 500 and 1,000 people. Uh, they're very remote. Uh, you can't get there by car. You can only get there by, 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 by flying in. There's no permanent roads in these communities. Uh, they're communities that depend upon the environment for resources. So for Inuit, hunting and fishing are a way of life. Not just a hobby, a way of life. It provides food. It's important for culture. Uh, and it takes place on the sea ice, it takes place on the frozen land. And one of the biggest impacts that climate change was seeing is on this subsistence way of life because as the, as the, as the earth warms, it's taking longer for the ice to freeze uh, and to reach a thickness at which it can be used safely. So what we're seeing is people have less ability to go out on the ice to access their hunting areas. Remember, in the Arctic there's no roads, especially in Arctic Canada. People use ice as the main means of transportation between communities and also to where, they're, to where they're hunting. So we're seeing very direct impacts on food systems. It's like your supermarket suddenly becoming further and further away because the roads are declining in quality. And then one year there's no road there at all. Uh, we're also seeing increasing danger. Uh, so when the ice is forming, it's taking much longer to reach a thickness at which it can be safely used. Uh, the weather is also changing. We see more extremes, more windy conditions and so forth. Uh, and across Northern Canada, in Inuit communities, there's a lot of concern about this increasing danger. And we hear stories of Inuit falling through the sea ice, losing their equipment, getting injured. Uh, this is obviously you know has a direct link to the effects of the effects of, of climate change. Uh, it's also linked as well to changes in how people use the environment. Uh, so there's concern across Inuit communities that some of the younger generations don't have as well developed environmental knowledge as they once had in, in the past. So it's about reading the ice. It's about reading the ice. So you know Inuit live with the ice. They know how to read the ice. Very experienced hunters know when certain trails are safe. They know what to look for. You know, an elder once told me on the ice he would stop every ten meters. He'd get out with his harpoon. He'd harpoon the ice, and he knew with how that harpoon went in the ice how thick the ice was. And if he got it wrong, and he put his foot down, he'd fall in the ice and potentially die. This is this is very very in depth knowledge, and hunters know they know what to look for. They know the cues. They know what time of the year certain trails are, are, are safe. They're always observing and they're always talking and learning from each other. But one of the challenges is that a lot of younger generations are spending less time on the sea ice. They're spending less time learning from their elders. So that when they go and travel on the ice between communities or between cabins or to hunting areas, they don't have as well-developed knowledge. And that's a problem because the ice is changing. The ice is becoming more dangerous to use. So it's a combination of climate change and social change, which together kind of accelerates each, each, each other. Tell us your story about the, the narwhal being hunted, this mythical creature. Yeah, so the narwhal is kind of an interesting creature. It's a whale I had no idea about until I went to the Arctic. It's basically a whale. It's about the length of this room, the large ones, up to like that. 16 feet long. Yeah, about 16 feet long, and, and some of them have tusks up to 8 feet long, the, the males. And they've been hunted for millennia by, by, by Inuit, who, who use that. They use all parts of the, of the whale for, for, for local, local food, basically. Um, and the skin forms what you call muktuk. And it's basically the, the blubber and a bit of fat. 
Uh, people chew it. They cut it up and then they chew it. And it's, not, it's not quite a taste. It, it's okay. <laughs> uh, I'm told if you grow up with it, it's, 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 it really tastes really good. And one of the communities I work in called Arctic Bay on, on North Baffin Island, Norwell is their thing. They look forward all year to the Norwell coming in. And the, the Norwell typically arrive end of July, early August. And it's a time of frenzied excitement in the community. Everyone's going out. There's usually a little bit of ice still left, so people going out on the ice is pretty dangerous because the ice is the ice is it's thin. It's getting really thin. It's starting to break up. Um, but people are prepared to take those dangers because the Norwell hunt is something that you do. It's something that brings together families, youth with 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 eld elders across the generations. And communities typically harvest, you know, anywhere from ten to to twenty, thirty plus animals. And these are, you know, they're consumed all year. The the the, the meat is stored. Um, Plenty of ice. Exactly, exactly. We've got yeah. Well, sometimes they yeah needs yeah needs to be cold. Um, but what but in recent years people have also started selling the tusk, uh, and you can get three thousand dollars for a tusk. But if you get a double tusk, and some Norwells have a double tusk, that can get eight to twelve thousand dollars. Obviously, that's a lot of money. Uh, you know, in, in Arctic Canada, communities have high levels of high levels of poverty. There aren't many jobs. In fact, if Arctic Canada was its own nation, it would have a human development index that's the same as a middle-income country like Guatemala or Honduras. And so the, the money that people get from selling these tusks on international markets is then used to recapitalize the subsistence-based harvesting economy. Because people have to buy snow machines, boats, guns, etc., to, to hunt in a contemporary way of life. And there's often very, very little, little cash available to, to capitalise those activities. So There's also this sort of other food is very expensive. How much is a loaf of bread? Yes, so it, it varies depending on the community and the time of year. But I've seen loaves of bread for about five or six pounds. I've seen litres of milk, five or six pounds. Uh, you want to buy meat, meat, say pork or beef, which is brought up from Southern Canada, you have to be up to 20, 30 pounds a, a, a kilo. So, so the oh, narwhal is absolutely crucial to some of those. The narwhal, the seal, caribou. Various species of fish. People here aren't hunting just for you know for a hobby. It's they're hunting for food, and it's all. And these animals have always been an important part of what people eat, and they continue to be extremely important. And they're not on the endangered list as far as the international union. Many aren't. So the narwhals not. The walrus isn't. And you will point out that many of these species are abundant, and they're also well managed. Canada has a very well developed system for regulating a number of species that even harvest that draws upon both science, but also the traditional knowledge of, of, of the Inuit as, as well. James Ford there, wrapping up this episode of Emergency on Planet Earth. Next time, join me as I travel to the Arctic and speak to scientists and the people who live there about the effects of climate change and pollution on this unique environment. Until then, I'm Mary Cray. This has been the Emergency on Planet Earth podcast. Thanks for listening.